Welcome to the world of consciousness, human development, and full potential. Here we have conversations with people from all over the world about the subjects that matter for our mind, body, and soul, so that you can create a truly spectacular life. It is all about weaving the sacred, the soulful, and the ordinary into our everyday existence. Inhale, exhale, and let's begin. This is Timeless Teachings, a global podcast with Jana Frey. Do you know where the best ideas come from? Or what does it mean to be creative? Or what can we learn from our dreams? Or maybe what creativity and consciousness have in common? Or what it means to be a human? In this episode, I'm having a conversation with Frederick Horan, and we are diving deep into these and other questions. Listen, and you might just hear an answer. Frederick, thank you so much for joining us today. It is a pleasure to have you here. It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Yes, I think it is the, the third interview we are doing together. We transitioned from Yana TV to now our timeless teachings. It means you and I know each other for a really long time, which is wonderful. Yes. And I have seen that you're also evolving and expanding so much with everything you do in your life. And you just recently published a book. Can you please show us on the camera what it is? So we can see which uh, book. Here we go. It's called the, the, un, the Unvisible, yes. The Unvisible by Frederick Horan. Mm. Well, I have the book signed by you, by the way. And I looked through this and I also read what other people say about it. And everyone says it is a very mystical book. So what can you tell us about the book? I, can t- uh, I want to start by, because this is crucial, I think, for for everything that's about, but everything about the book, but also everything about this conversation, I think, is I want to start with the idea. And because I, it actually came to me in a dream. And I have, I, have, I have had many dreams in my life, but I've never, ever had a dream like this. It was unlike any dream I've ever had. It was so vivid. It was so powerful. It had such a strong message. And it normally... Dreams don't make sense, but in this sense, it's made 100% sense. And I actually just recently found an email I wrote to my brother the day after I had this dream. So I woke up at 2 a.m. I was in Bangkok, of all the places in the world. No drugs involved, I promise. But I woke up at 2 a.m. in a hotel room in Bangkok, and I just dreamt the movie. And I, I wrote down everything I could remember about the dream at 2 a.m. I went to sleep, and I said, when I wake up tomorrow, this is going to be all crap. But then I woke up the next morning and I looked at it. And not only did I remember the dream, still, I also read what I've written and it made total sense. And I sent that. Luckily, I sent those notes to my brother the next day. I said, look what I dreamt. This is going to be, I'm going to write this down as a, I have to write this as a book. And now when the book came out, I just found this email and it's 80, 90%. Basically, it's the story. Of course, the book is much more than just what I wrote down. But everything I wrote down is in the book. The only thing that's different is the title because it said 
is going to be called it's called the invisible or the non-visible so i didn't really know what what the what the, i knew it was not the invisible but it was the non-visible or unvisible and uh yeah it is like it is literally i describe it and i know this might be sound very grand but it's the, like the message of my life it was the message i was born to deliver and it was delivered to me and it was delivered in a dream well, you are on timeless teaching, so there's nothing too grand here. You're just perfect, you know, with your messaging. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the message of your life. Okay, you're here to deliver this message. And um, I know that it is a mystical message and it's a mystical story. And you sort of have been uh, very creative in the way how the book was positioning. So I don't want to ask too much about the book itself, we'll be able to read it, to get yeah. actually- I can tell you about the message though, because I think that's, uh, I mean, it came, the message came, the story came to me, but also the, the, the story came uh, as a message, right? That, that is why, that's why it's, in, that's why it's a story. So the story, the message is, it's actually what it, about what it means to be a human. So yet you could say it's mystical, but it, to me, it's a message about what it means to be human. And, and the invisible is, is an invisible human race. That's what I dreamt. I dreamt that there are white people and black people and Asian people, and but they are also totally transparent, 100% transparent human beings. They are just like us, uh, just like we have glass in nature or a perfect diamond, light just goes straight through it. So their skin is so, uh, so white that it becomes transparent to our human eyes, which we all know are not perfect. We cannot see everything in nature. We can just see a small spectrum of it. And therefore we cannot see these human beings, but they are just like us. We can, we can, uh, we can bump into them. We can arm wrestle with them. We can, uh, we can have sex with them. Anything. they're just human beings. They just have a different skin than us, that we, which makes them invisible to us. And then the message becomes like, what would, how would we behave if we find out that there was an invisible race living next to us, because they are everywhere. They're, there are like two billion of them living amongst us. And that's why the logo of the book, which I also dreamt, by the way, or it, it came to me in a daydream. The logo is a yin and yang symbol where the black dot is missing. Uh, so it's like this, the, the black dot is missing, right? So mm -hmm. they, yeah, are the, the, they are the white and we are the black. We are the visible, they are the invisible. They are still part of our life, but we are not part of their life anymore because we have lost our ability to see them. That is, and, and then the, all the philosophical questions that comes with it is how would we behave if we found out there was an invisible race? What is it that really makes a human a human and so on? So that, that's all, all the profound philosophical questions about humanity that is built into this internal uh, and external, I mean, internal and eternal, in, what do you call that? When it goes on forever, eternal, eternal conflict between two kinds of humanities. And I also have seen in your book, you mentioned that your middle child, your daughter, right? She had, what, how she do had, you call them? Invisible yeah. friends, invisible friends. friends. Yeah, she had made up friends. And, and actually, when I started researching this for the book, 5% of all children have invisible friends, including one of my three children. And in my book, or in my dream, I should say, in the book, the story, every baby can see the invisible and that is why you you know you have a child and it's totally in, in peace it's totally calm and for no reason whatsoever the child just starts screaming like crazy why does this happen well in my story it's because the, the children have perfect eyesight and perfect ear hearing and perfect smell 
and they can thus therefore see the invisible. And then we, they, most children lose this ability before they have the ability to speak. So they can't tell anyone about it, except the 5% who have what we call invisible friends or made up friends or, or imaginary friends. They are actually not imaginary friends. They are the invisible. And after, after the kid is like, I mean, my daughter, she lost the ability when she was five. And that's, uh, we always told her, you're just making this up, aren't you? Uh, but what if they're not? That's kind of the premise. Yes. And actually, from what I know, uh, everything around consciousness, not I don't know everything around consciousness, but I do know about consciousness yes, you do. <laughs> that it's uh, about maximum, they say, until the age of seven. Right. So it's within those first seven years, but exactly what you said, but by most people lose this ability by the age of two or three. Yeah. Some retain by the age of five, yeah. very few by the age of seven or later. Those are real exceptions. But, you know, like I know even in my own family, my mom used to tell me the story when she was a child. So also about that three, four, five years old, she very clearly saw certain um, images, figures, uh, beings, right, in, in her place that were not uh, kind of her parents wouldn't be able to see with their eyes. And I they know. were telling her the same thing, that you're just making it up. But I remember that she, I mean, she was also very scared of them because yes. they looked a bit different. Yes. And it's exactly what you said. So like in my own family, I have a direct example where it has been absolutely true, right? And it's everywhere. It's in all cultures. I've Googled a lot because in my, they are, they are very, very white. They have very white skin. And even if you go to Aboriginal, you can go to Africa, you can go to Australia, you can go in China, a lot of, like you have the jinn in, the, in um, Iran, there a lot of stories about human-like spirits that are very, beings that are very, very white. But of course, my book is not, it could be seen as a metaphor. Either these humans are a metaphor for the unknown that we don't know about, which could be spirits or, go or ghosts or angels or whatever we want to call them. Or they can be a metaphor uh, the other way around and saying that the stories that we have about angels or spirits or whatever we want to call them, maybe they are just a, a, a different parts of ourselves. Maybe they're just a different part of humanity. But either way you look at it, it and I'm not taking a side here. To me, it's a matter the story is a metaphor about the, the things we don't know about the world and about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a question? How much do you personally believe in the metaphysical world? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I am a very, very strong agnostic, which means, uh, and some people look down on agnostics and saying, well, you have to pick a side. I love agnostics. Come on, they're the most, you know, common sense people. <laughs> exactly. To me, it's the most curious aspect of it. So I'm extremely open. I am extremely open to, uh, but uh, to me, it's, it's this way. I, you know, I call myself the creativity explorer. And to explore, the definition of explore means to venture into unknown territory in order to learn more about it. So it's the opposite of an expert. An expert or, is someone who knows everything. An explorer is someone who knows nothing, but who venture in, into the areas that no one knows about in, in order to try to find new land or new insights, or in my case, new no insights about creativity. But it's the mindset of not knowing anything. And I, to me, that's agnostic. I, being a, a, what an agnostic means. It means I know nothing, but I do know there's so much out there that I don't know about. And I'm going to be curious about it. And to me, that is, that, that's the, the best way to approach all of this. Because the more you study it, the more you know you don't know anything.
which is very interesting because this is the one of the main messages of all mystical schools around yeah, the world. Exactly. You know? And actually, I, I mean, I, I have several friends, I have spoke to several people who consider themselves to be agnostics, interviewed a few of them. And, you know, for me, it's, it's amazing each time when I talk to a person like that, actually what they say is the essence of whatever we call in the world of consciousness and you know personal development and human potential. Yeah. So sometimes, yeah. So sometimes people who say they are not that, they actually understand it the most. Yes, and that's they how feel. like in the, my son is doing taekwondo, and it's the black belt. It's like you, you when you don't know anything about it, you think oh black belt it means like you're the expert. No, no, no. Black belt means that's when you're starting. Like now you reached now this is where your learning starts. And I like that approach a lot. So, so open and creative is the answer to everything. Exactly. And so about the book, I am as uh, someone who is writing my first book yes. <laughs> because you inspired me so much with your book. <laughs> I can't wait to read that book. I told you this in person. Exactly. I'm and you really told me because you were like that final, you know, this final sort of inspiration from life that I needed when you told me, Jana, you really have to write this book. I'm like, okay, I'm writing the book. I yeah. want to push you over the cliff. I don't know if that's a good metaphor, but. <laughs> well, to fly, I guess, right? So it depends how you transition it. <laughs> but then my question is, um, how 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 do you write? What is your creative process? And I know it's very different for each author, right? So what is yeah. yours? It's also very different depending on what I write. So mm -hmm. I've written many books, but this is my first novel and it's totally a different. And because this came in a dream. So normally, I, I think I wrote that summer, some, I said, writing a, a fiction, non-fiction book is trying to get as clear, uh, to, to clarify your thoughts as best you can. It's like the clearest thoughts in your brain is when you write a non-fiction book, like uh, telling people, this is how I look at the world. Writing a novel is going as deep as you can into your heart and not trying to uh, you know, control the process. So my for this book, which is very, very special, it was all about hanging on to that dream and just following it wherever it went. So I could actually go back into the dream. Normally, you have a dream once and then after you wake up, you've forgotten it, or you, mem you remember it and you, you, know, you tell someone and then you forget it. Or you are in this no man's land, like, oh, keep, keep, keep this dream, don't forget this idea, and then you, it's gone. But this dream I could go back to. And I thought I was making this up. I thought I was like, no, nah, you're just making this up. You're actually just creating this now. But then I interviewed a few other creative people, and I realized that this is actually a skill that you can practice. The pra you can practice the idea of going back into the same dream to find out a deeper message. And if it's okay, I want to share with you because it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Not about my book, but about this skill of, of going back into your dreams and understanding that dreams is a very, very important part of our creative process. So this is, I don't, I forgot his name now, but he's a watch designer in Switzerland. And he worked for 15 years for like Rolex, all the big guys, and he would create watches for them. And he's working 15 hours a day. He's like obsessed with watches and working hard. And then finally, his body just said enough. Like this is your, and basically he had a burnout. So he slept for 15 hours a day for one year. 
wow. I know. Because he had so much, the body had so much bent, like he had been awake for so long. Finally, the body said, okay, you need to rest. And normally like, oh, I slept 12 hours or 15 hours. Well, no, he did it for a year. And, 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 and when he woke up, he didn't work. He woke up and he binged watched Star Trek, the series. So like the whole series. So every day he would sleep for 15 hours, wake up, binge watch Star Trek, basically a science fiction series, and then eat and go back to sleep again. That's what he did. Yeah. It's a mind reboot, you know? I mean, it's like totally, right? <laughs> but then in the middle of this, he has this amazing dream. He basically dreams a watch mechanism that is not 2D, like almost all watches are just 2D, right? He dreamed it's a 3D model. Basically, it looks like a planetary system where the things are, are, are it's a, the, the watch doesn't have a glass like normal glass. It has a dome. And it, within this, all these mechanisms are moving like planets moving around the sun. Very complex mechanism. He wakes up and he's like, wow, I have to make this watch. And he starts building this watch. And then he gets stuck. And his team says, okay, now what? And he goes, I don't, it doesn't work. I don't know. And he said, oh, my God, it's so good. But there's one piece missing. And he goes, don't worry, I'll just go back to sleep. So he went back to sleep and he went back and saw the whole mechanism again. And he could just go from a different perspective and go, oh, now I see it. And he woke up and he continued building the watch. And, and I show it, I give it to you so you can put it in the show notes so that people can Google this. But yeah. it won a prize for like the most innovative watch in the world for that year. That it, It's a beautiful, beautiful watch. And, and you to know, me, that's the same skill. It's that skill of understanding that the, some ideas, not all ideas, but some ideas are not yours. They are just there in the universe. And your job is to connect to that dream and just hold on, to, like dock to it. Well, it's what Einstein did with the yeah. table, right? I mean, not only and- him. You, you go to the Nobel Prize Museum and you look at the number of, where the Nobel Prize winners describe how they had the idea and you realize that a, a vast majority of Nobel Prize winning ideas are in this category. For example, one of them was watching and in, looking into a fire and the flames from, and then the flames created a pattern and, and he came up with this idea. Or there's a beautiful, is it Elsa Besko, as well, as a Swedish author who won the Nobel, woman who won a Nobel Prize very early on. And she described when she was walking in the streets of Stockholm and suddenly the idea came to her, just like Harry Potter, by the way. And the idea just came to her, the whole book came to her in one go. And she describes how this, the, the streets of Stockholm started, uh, like, uh, became like waves and everything was just moving. And she looked around at all the other people in, in the city and no one else was reacting. And it's like, how can they not react when the whole, when the whole world is just moving? Mm-hmm. And that's when the idea came to her and she realized, okay, this, I have to write this book down. It became her bestseller. You know, it's so interesting you are sharing it because I, mean, I always felt that creativity is very closely connected with like consciousness or spirituality or whatever we call, you know, those words, right? Because I mean, if we look at it like in a practical way, not in a woo way, but in a practical way, it's pretty much just the human ability to go to something which is beyond mind or beyond what I am, right? And it's like, I mean, this is where all those 
ideas are. And it's just people who are highly creative. I mean, like artists, musicians, you know, writers, right? Also, they're, they're able to go there. And what you said, I think they're always saying the same things that it's like, it comes to me. It writes yeah. to me, you know, yeah. it's just, yeah. So it's very beautiful how you're describing your own experience with that. Yeah. And there's another one I want to share because this is also because he he proves that actually there are not all ideas come like this. They also can come just the way we normally think of ideas. And this is an uh, uh, from Hong Kong. He's uh, he's a sculptor, Johnson Tsang. He he grew up without his parents. So when he was five, his father was an alcoholic, if I if I remember right. So basically, they didn't have time to. So he just they just left him. He just walked out in the streets of Hong Kong and just raised himself. So very creative person. But he talked, so I walked into his studio and he creates little, uh, beautiful um, sculptures, small ones. And I walked around in this studio and I looked at what he was doing and I guess they were so different. The, the sculptures were so different. And then he described his creative process. So he has two creative processes. One is that he says, oh, I'm going to write this. I'm going to, I know, I'm going to do a sculpture about Donald Trump. And then he did a sculpture about Donald Trump. The other ones is where he either meditates or he goes to sleep and with a mission and saying, now I'm going to come up with an idea and goes to sleep. And then he wakes up in the middle of the night and he has a crazy, crazy idea, a crazy, crazy dream. And he called this mortal ideas and divine ideas. Mm-hmm. Okay. And mortal ideas is like, I'm going to make something about Donald Trump or where should I go on vacation? And it's like, these are more, it's me as a human being trying to be creative. And those are great sculptures. No, no, no issue. But the other ones, the mortal ideas that just come to him and all his job is just to remember what came to him. They're like crazy. It's like a face with other faces coming out of the face. It's like surrealistic, super divine, divine ideas. Mm-hmm. True, totally. Those are the divine ideas. Like I, he didn't come, I didn't come up with that. It just came to me. And I would walk through his studio and I would point at his different pieces and I would go, let me guess. This is a divine idea. He goes, absolutely. It came to me in meditation. This is a mortal idea. Yep. I came up with that one. And then I, every time I did it, I was right. And the mortal ideas are like 10 times as good as the, uh, no, the divine ideas are 10 times as cool as the mortal ideas. And it proves to me, same as the watch designer, same as my book, is that if you want to have a really, really, really good ideas, we should just let go and let the universe come with those ideas to us instead. But it was interesting how you could see which one was which. And I love how the person who said that he's agnostic using the words, you know, universe come to us. Yeah. <laughs> and I also like, do you mean God? He goes, no, 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 this is not. He's same approach as me, totally agnostic. I don't care what we call it, but we have, but it's so clear in, in that case that you could see that I don't care if it's a subconscious or a spirit or a God, I don't care, but it's definitely there. And to ignore, to not acknowledge that it is there, it would be lying to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And to me, you know, the word creativity comes from the word create, and the word create comes from the word God, it comes from the word creator, which means God. God created everything. So, it, I, again, as an agnostic, I don't care if it's a God or not a God, but I do care about the word creativity is when we feel as much as gods as possible, is when we have a really good idea. That's when we feel divine, right? But I'm talking about the, I'm talking about the divine ideas category now. Like we never feel more as one with the universe than when there's only one spirit, there's only one human feeling stronger than this, and that's love. 
But apart, no, love is stronger than that. But after that, the second strongest human emotion is when we have a divine idea. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting for me also how you um, how you describe it, you know, which mm-hmm. reminds me that there is actually a state which is called God consciousness. Mm-hmm. Like when we talk about states of consciousness, it's literally a state which is a God consciousness that has sort of its own description how a human being, you know, would feel. And usually for most people, kind of, you can almost accidentally end up there. That's yeah. what I feel when, when this woman who was walking in Stockholm was describing, because when you just suddenly, for the mind seems to be for no reason, yes. you know, end up being in this state, this is when all those, the ideas, but often also it does come sometimes that the reality looks a bit different. Not always, but sometimes. It's so, a very good analogy because it's it's kind of like a door opening, right? So you can accidentally have a walk straight into that door or you can actually consciously consciously decide to search for that door but of course you can just consciously decide that you're going to search for the door but you can't use your consciousness to search for the door so then you know you can take a conscious decision to say i'm going to be more open to these kinds of ideas but then the trick of course is to turn off your consciousness (laughs) because that's the only way you can find the door that's actually was exactly my next question because I can almost feel people who are watching and listening. They go, "Well, I love it so much. Okay, it's super cool. It's great. I love the idea of creativity and ideas. You know, how do I get there?" So, Frederick, well, how do you get there? Yes, because <laughs> in my day job, I teach people how to become more creative, and I've asked hundreds of thousands of people, "When do you have your like your divine ideas? Your like your really really good ideas? When does this happen?" And people have different answers. So. It can be on a, like when I'm traveling on a plane or a train, that would be the JK Rowling answer. Or it can be like in a dream, like happened to me or happened to, I, I think Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Frankenstein are both nightmares. So that happens a lot. Or it could be out walking in nature, which is the example I just gave with the woman in Stockholm. Uh, or some people, when I'm together with other people and we're having fun and brainstorming, but that's not a very common answer. It's about 20%. Uh, and then when, I, when I'm in the shower, in the bathtub, or next to next to water, which is the Archimedes people, like I said, he sat down in a bathtub and he had a brilliant idea. And that is, by the way, as you know, I I live on an island, not all yeah. the time, but every year I live two out two at least two months on an island because I want to be. The common denominator here is people are alone. They're not trying to be creative. They're not working. They are relaxed. They are by themselves. They're next to water, and in the in the aspect of traveling, it's they're moving. There's there's a movement, like on a train. Do, 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 do. You have that thing. So when you live on an island, you get all of that. If if you walk around on an island, you get all of that, which is what I do. So I've built like the perfect environment. If creativity is the plant, the beautiful flower, you need to have the perfect soil. So to answer your question, what do you do? You make sure that you spend time with your body and soul in an environment that nurtures your creativity. If that is together with other people, you should spend more time with other people. But if that is by being by yourself, you should be more by yourself and so on. And I usually don't share this because some people think I'm crazy. But if you take this thing and you say, where do people have really, really, really good ideas? Okay, let's see. In the shower, which means water, uh, or bathtub, water, in when I'm sleeping, which means in the dark, when I'm traveling, which is I'm I'm bumping around, I like something is moving me around, I'm by myself. Okay. So where is this? 
you're by yourself, you're not thinking, you are, it's, it's dark, you're surrounded by water and you're being bumped around. Where is this? Well, I know, for some, some kind of submarine. <laughs> oh, it's the womb. It's the, it's the womb. It's the womb. Mm. Yes. It's, the, it's your first nine months of consciousness is that you're all by yourself, in, surrounded by water, being bounced around all by yourself, not consciously thinking because there's nothing to think about inside there. Uh, and that is where your brain started to work. That is where, that is where, where you became you. And, and you, if you realize this, this is, uh, then maybe creativity is just connecting back to that purest, purest of you because there's no other, there's so little outside noise around it. So you are, you're never more with yourself than when those nine months, right? So the whole idea of actually trying not to re, I mean, you can recreate that. You can go to those floating tanks and, you know, you can totally re recreate this but to understand that that's where your, your brain actually started to work for nine months and then realize that okay this is this is something we should maybe emulate or take the best parts of or whatever it is something in that made your brain tick very well mm -hmm. you know it, it's really beautiful because like as i mentioned earlier about the god consciousness state right so when we when we talk about it we say it's about the unlearning Mm. And so when I'm listening to you right now, I feel it's a very similar idea. You just talk about this in a different way because yeah. those very first nine months, we didn't know anything, right? Yeah. This is the, that's, that's the purest. Or we knew, or we knew everything. Or we knew, and it's almost like because we didn't know anything, we knew everything, right? Because there was no conditioning yet. It was this pure state, whatever we yeah. call the state, mind, consciousness, beingness, people use different words for this, but yeah. it's a state. And then we come to this world and boom, we start imprinting and conditioning. This is right. This is wrong. This is white. This is black. You can see this. You cannot see that. Right. So, and then it's interesting that with, with time, and I think in your work, you probably see that. I mean, children by nature are much more creative because they're less conditioned. Usually, yeah. again, not yeah. for everyone, but usually the more older a person becomes, the less creative the person becomes because there's more conditioning around it. Exactly. And that's also part of your job. You help people to remove that so they can get yes. creativity. Yes. And that's why I think that the, 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 the power of the invisible, the story, is that I could invent, I, I invented a brand new human race. They are one human race, just like us, but they have no baggage. Like there's nothing connected mm -hmm. to this. There's an empty human race that I now could put in and anything that I wanted humanity to be from my subconscious, but also something that we could project and say, well, okay, if we don't have all these cultural biases and, our, you know, the culture we grew up in or our family and all that, we take all of that away. We're just pure humanity left. Uh, and, and then the metaphor becomes a transparent human being, right? It's like an empty glass, basically. So that's the metaphor. If, if the humanity is the empty glass, we take away all the liquid in it, then what is left? That, that, become, that became, and that is usually, that's the very profound thing. That is the most us. Just like the babies, we are the most ourselves. And I had a, a very, very profound experience when I left when I left Sweden, I, I'm Swedish and I lived in Sweden until I was 30 something years old, but then I moved to China and for a little bit, it's kind of like when you go to, <laughs> you go to space and you're weightless, but if you go to that airplane that makes a loop for a few seconds, you're weightless, you can experience weightlessness. 
I experience this empty glass of humanity when I moved, just when I moved to China. Because I, I arrived in Beijing, I didn't know a single person, had no friends, no connections, didn't speak the language, nothing. So I was all by myself. And I would go to a restaurant and I, would, I, didn't, I couldn't read the menu. I would just point at three dishes and I hoped that one of them I would like and the other two I wouldn't eat if I didn't like them. Uh, and then the food came and, the, and they would serve me a fork, a spoon, a knife, and uh, the Chinese knife, I mean, a Chinese spoon for the rice, and a chopstick. So a Western knife and a, a Chinese knife, a fork, a spoon, uh, a knife, and two chopsticks. And give me all of that. Because they didn't know if I could eat the Chinese way. And they, did, and they asked me what I wanted. I didn't know what they were saying. So they would just give them everything. And for the first time in my, the only time in my life, I would look at the dish and say, how shall this be eaten? Because mm. I didn't know how you're supposed to eat it. I have never eaten it before. I had my knowledge of eating things in my culture, but I not, did not. So I could now decide, do I want, I could take one chopstick and just, you know, nail a meatball with it and eat it because that was the best way to eat it. No culture, there was an empty glass around eating. And it just liberated me so much because I could look at everything and say, is this really me? Is eating with a fork really me? Or is it the culture I was, is it that little bit of something put something into my glass where you eat with a fork? Like, that's not me. That was put, that's not the glass. That's the liquid in the glass. And for a few, few days there, I was, there was nothing in my glass. And I could look at, it became a metaphor. I could look at everything in my life and say, how do I want to eat this? Became, how do I want to live this? And that's exactly when um, we talk about the higher states of freedom. It was so liberating. And yeah. then I can access that state that I was in and say on other things, like raising my kids. Do I raise my kids? How do I want to raise my kids? Not based on how I think you should raise kids, based on how my culture says I should raise kids. And it helps that my wife is uh, uh, from Asia. She's Filipino. So there wasn't any right or wrong. Like, how do you raise kids? She had her way. I had my way. Then we have the Singapore way. And it again, creates this freedom of saying, well, you know, what is my way of raising kids? That, that is the most important one. Well, speaking about kids, if I were to ask you now as a parent, what <laughs> I have to ask, right? You have three of them. I do. <laughs> what, um, what would be the main message you would like to say to your kids? Okay, I will. Well, that came in a dream, didn't it? All, every, all important messages came okay, in. Okay, it's a book. So you wrote a book for your kids so they know about it. No, no, no. <laughs> I wrote the book for, I don't know, for everyone, I guess, for humanity. I did, the book has all, it's good. The book is a vessel for all the messages that is, was in me that I hadn't been able to kind of put into the world. So there is a message in the book, this kind of main message in the book. And the message is, life is beautiful, live a beautiful life. And uh, it is very profound to me. And this, uh, a similar message to this came to me. I was in Sri Lanka after I had the idea for the dream, but before, before I had written it, I was in Sri Lanka. I went to a Buddhist uh, silent retreat for 11 days. And I was like five days in. I was only me. I was the only student. I was a, me, a Buddhist monk. And me, and I was the only one. I spoke to him for 15 minutes a day, and the rest was silence meditation. Five days in to this, I'm in my little hut sleeping, and I, and I wake up, 
And my whole body just says, don't move. Like I still haven't opened my eyes, but it says, don't move. And then just lie very still. Now when you're still, I mean, like when, when you're totally calm, but not until you are totally calm, then you can open your eyes. That's the message I got. Right? So then I calmed myself down. And when I was totally calm, I opened my eyes. And I opened my eyes. I'm lying on the floor two meters up in this little hut or one, 180 meters up in this hut lies a two meter long snake on like the, like the little ledge of the wall. The wall is this thick and the snake is this thick. So it's just light. And he's lying exactly the length of my body. So his tail is where my feet is and his head is where my head is. So I, I look up and I basically see like a snake next to me, except two meters higher up. And the snake is looking right straight down at me. It's bright, bright yellow. And what I've learned about snakes is the more colorful they are, the more dangerous they are. That's what I learned. <laughs> and I look at this snake and I'm just one with it. It's just the most beautiful feeling in my life. And I had that feeling that life is beautiful, live a beautiful life. That took, and I looked at this snake and I said, okay, you are there, I am here, and we're just together. And the snake looked at me and then the snake just went away. Turns out later, it was not a poisonous snake. I didn't know that at the time. But that message came to me, like just the beauty of the snake and the beauty of me and everything. And it was the same message. And it, if I can give that kind of a message to my kids, it, 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 it boils down to this. And I do this all the time. So when I, the message is, I haven't shared this so much, but the message is that there's all, it's not positive thinking. It's like this. There's always something beautiful in life. Okay. So I can be in a super boring airport business lounge with no windows in it and someone smoking. It's like, and I haven't slept and everyone is angry. This is an ugly, ugly place. It's the opposite of what the beauty of the world is, right? But then if, I, if I'm in a situation like this, I'll go out and I search for the, the one beautiful thing. It could be a, a flower. It could be a smile of a child or whatever it is. And I focus all my being on that. The, what is the most beautiful thing in my world right now? Very often, it's a window. I can just look at and see a cloud. That's very often. That's what it is. And if I'm on a beautiful beach surrounded by good friends or and music, it's still, you can always pick what's the most beautiful thing right now. I'm going to, oh, look, listen to that guitar. And I listen to that guitar. Very, very seldom is it another human being. But if it is, that is beautiful. So then you're connecting with a human being and it's like, oh, this is wonderful. And almost never is it yourself. <laughs> and with that beautiful message, Frederick, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us here today. That was such a beautiful conversation. I enjoyed every bit of it. And we will absolutely put all the details and all the links and everything, the stories that you mentioned for people to check it out and also connect with Frederick and also how you can find the book. We will also include all of this and I can just say that that was for me uh, an incredibly beautiful morning with just messages that truly resonate with the soul on so many levels. So thank you. For being yeah, thank here. you. I, great example. I was focusing on you the whole time. So that, that's a great <laughs> example. When the most beautiful thing in the room, in the room is a small picture of your computer screen, you know you're having a good conversation. <laughs> <laughs> A gentle reminder that this is not a regular podcast, because here we have no rules and no scripted questions. 
All conversations are spontaneous, unfiltered, and deep with people from all over the world, regardless of their race, religion, nationality, language, or other circumstances. These people are teachers, experts, coaches, leaders, and influencers who are all simply ordinary human beings doing their thing. The intention of this podcast is to showcase the infinite variety of how human beings think and what they do to create happiness, fulfillment, realization, health, wealth, bliss, and overall, a truly spectacular life. Did you enjoy the interview? Feel free to share this episode with friends, subscribe to the podcast and YouTube channel, and follow us on social media. And remember, you are a spectacular human being.